Amen. Beautiful admonition uh, to those in a covenant relationship of marriage, but also to us as a, as a church body, uh, as a church family, uh, serving one another in the context in, in which God's word uh, calls each believer to, to do. Um, we have been in a sermon series through the, the Sermon on, on the Mount as uh, a sub-series within a larger series of looking at the life and the early, uh, earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've uh, ventured in, in true Western uh, fashion to try and uh, look chronologically at the, the life and the earthly ministry of, of Jesus. And we've uh, weaved in the four Gospels together uh, to go on a journey uh, to look at the events of Christ's life uh, best as we can ascertain as they unfolded in real time uh, here on this earth, giving us a picture of the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, uh, ha- has truly walked among us, lived among us, that uh, the one that existed outside of time, the one who always was, who always is, always will be, uh, humbled himself to the point of taking on flesh, coming and uh, resigning himself uh, to the one who existed outside of time, resigning himself to live within the constraints of time and within the constraints of flesh, and he did so uh, to come ultimately to die for your sins and for my sins upon the cross. And uh, the the Sermon on the Mount, it is, it is relentless uh, in many regards. Uh, last week, we, we looked at the topic of, of lust as addressed by, by Jesus. We looked at pornography. We looked at lust. We looked at sexual immorality. And you would say, for those that uh, were with us last week, that uh, could, could we take a little bit of a break this week? Could maybe something a little, a little bit maybe lighter of, of a topic uh, that we could look at? Uh, could, could, we, could we talk about breakthroughs and, and what's right around the corner? And let's look at all the things that are going to happen and let, let's look at those things. And, and Jesus says, how about divorce and remarriage? And here at Community, we love to preach through books of the Bible. Because you, you can't avoid what it is that Jesus says must be addressed. You can't just cherry pick the topics that are feel good. You can't just pick the things that uh, are the pet peeves of the pastor that you want to, to preach upon. But we must look at what God's word has to say about the issue of divorce, marriage, and remarriage. Now, in light of this text, I'm presented with a little bit of some trouble. Not because the text is vague, not because in our culture and in our society today we take different stances upon these issues, but because I know that there are individuals that are in this room that deal with the wounds of divorce, that deal with questions surrounding remarriage, that I am not going to be able to address each and every scenario that they may find themselves in in this time we have allotted today. There's, there's just no way. There's, there's a, a theological addressing. There's a pastoral addressing. Uh, there is addressing of uh, what it is that, that God's word has to say in, in Hebrew and Deuteronomy 24.1. We'll talk about that briefly. What Greek is, is, is saying, there, there's so many variances uh, to this, that there's no way I can cover uh, everybody's story and do a full discourse upon this topic. Some of you sit in this room and you have fresh wounds in regards to what it is that we're going to look at this morning. Some of those wounds may be old, and what we're going to address today may bring some of those things back up to the surface. But yet, Christ desires for us to deal with everything within this world in a way that brings God honor and brings God glory. Thinking of all the various ways that we could address this, what if a wife commits adultery? She is repentant and wants to to save the marriage, but the husband knows he must forgive, but he wants to file divorce anyways. What, what, What transpires? Does it make any difference if the wife was frequently unfaithful? What about a wife gets a divorce because of marital unfaithfulness and it has been determined that she has legitimate grounds for that divorce? If divorce, is she then free to, to remarry? Uh, 
What if the husband repents? Is he free to remarry? What if a non-Christian couple gets divorced and later uh, a man comes to faith in in Christ Jesus and realizes the divorce was wrong? Is he obligated to try to win her back and and to remarry her? What if he tries to be reconciled and his ex-wife has no interest? Is he free to then remarry as an individual who has now come to faith in, in, in Jesus Christ? What if a remarried couple comes to realize their divorce and remarriage was sinful and and committing adultery uh, by staying married? If they stay married, what should they do to to, to make things right? Uh, What if both husband and wife commit adultery? What if they're both guilty and they decide to get a divorce? Are they both free to remarry? All of these things, there's no way that I could address each and every one of these topics and situations that may present themselves in the time that we have allotted. But I don't think we necessarily have to. I think if there are still questions that linger after this, that is why being plugged into a church and not just casual attendance is so important. Because you have access to uh, come and to, to visit with a pastor in regards to those questions that you may have. And so this morning, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Matthew 5, 31 through 37, and a message entitled, The Covenant of Marriage. The covenant of marriage. One of my great joys is standing with a a man and a woman as they venture into the covenant relationship of marriage. I love a good good wedding. I love to be a part of a a good wedding to to watch a a husband and a wife uh, commit themselves together in this covenant relationship of marriage. When the wife starts to, uh, the bride starts to come down, the wedding march is playing, and the bride starts to come down, and everybody is standing and, and looking at the bride. I always love to watch the groom. While all the, the focus and the eyes are on the, on the bride, I love to watch the groom and just the, the longing and loving and, and sometimes maybe even fearful look to some degree at his bride coming down that, that aisle. Sometimes those tears start to well up. Sometimes that lip starts to quiver. Knees start to shake. And it's a perfect opportunity for me to remind them, don't lock your legs, especially if it's an outdoors wedding. But I love to look at the groom because that same look of love and longing, the same look of anticipation I believe it's the longing and loving look that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has for his bride, the church. And he looks at us with longing and with love in his heart for each and every one of us. And what we address today is something that causes him great grief. Verse 31 says this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, many individuals would look at this and say that amongst the six antithesis, uh, these two really should be separate. There should be uh, a, a, a sermon on divorce and me remarriage, uh, and there should be a sermon on the taking of oaths. But I would say that what uh, Christ is really driving home is although he is saying, you have heard wrongly, and I'm going to tell you truthfully that these two go together because every divorce is resulted in at least one participant not adhering to the vows that they committed to the other. The vow to say, my yes is yes, and my no is no. And in sickness and in health, richer or poor, let whatever come what may, my yes is yes to to you, and I will take no other than you. My no is no, I will not turn from you. My no is no, I am committed to you. And every divorce has at least one participant within the marriage that did not keep their yes, yes, and their no, no by adhering to their vows. 
And what Jesus wants to do is express to us the seriousness of marriage. We were on our way this weekend to celebrate my, my daughter's 10th birthday. She came across uh, a book in, in her studies. Um, she's, she turned 10 uh, uh, probably five or six months ago. And she came across this, this study on the Titanic. And she became en- enthralled with the Titanic. And so she wanted to go to Branson. And for her birthday, she wanted to go to the Titanic Museum. Um, I don't know how many 10-year-olds, but that's, that's what she wanted to do. So we, we said, uh, all right, uh, I don't have to decorate anything, so I'm, I'm good with that. And on our way there, there's this big billboard that said, quick and easy divorce. And it had a number below it. Let me tell you, in our society today, we look at something that God counts to be so serious, so flippantly. Oh, it might be quick, but it will never be easy to separate the two that have been come to one flesh underneath the eyes of God in the establishment of a covenant. And so they come to Jesus. They're listening, and Jesus addresses something that was um, talked about and debated amongst really two schools of thought within the life of Judaism at that time. You had uh, the, the Rabbi Shammai uh, who had a view that there, there should be absolutely no uh, uh, divorce except for sexual immorality. That was the only grounds uh, of, of divorce uh, was sexual immorality. Uh, secondly, you had a school of thought that uh, was held by Rabbi Hillel, which was very lax, that said, listen, uh, in interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1, uh, there is a word that says that a man can grant a certificate of divorce for any indecency found in his wife. And there was a great debate of what that word indecency means. It has the connotations of sexual immorality, uh, but it also was, was looked at in, in various ways by the school of Hillel to really mean anything to the point that the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition that, in, in, that was, ended up being written down of the rabbis and the interpretation of Scripture, so a big commentary that the Jews uh, adhered to uh, that really was, was formulated uh, by 200 AD, but was still talked about in the days of Jesus, says this, the Mishnah stated that a man could divorce his wife if she were barren, if she became a deaf mute, if she had epilepsy, tetanus, warts, or leprosy, all grounds for a man to divorce his wife. The Mishnah also insisted that a man could divorce his wife if she failed to perform certain services in the home. Each day she was required to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, make the beds, and weave with wool every day. And if the husband considered her lazy, he still had the prerogative to divorce her. Now that brother didn't do none of that. And he going to call her lazy? Rabbinic law, the Mishnah also stated that certain physical defects in the wife were so offensive that they were legitimate grounds for divorce. The general principle was that any physical defect or blemish that was serious enough to disqualify a man from the priesthood was sufficiently repulsive to serve as a ground for divorce. This is how flippant individuals got within the grounds of granting the certificate of divorce. Consequently, a man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was wedge-shaped, turn-up-shaped, or hammer-shaped. Now, this isn't, I'm, I'm just telling you what they said. <laughs> or if her head was otherwise malformed, such as sunk in or flat at the back. He could also divorce his wife if she had poor posture or if she had thinning hair. He could divorce her if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. (laughs) We laugh, but this is serious, right? This is legitimately what the rabbinic school of Hillel and what ultimately Judaism would adopt as grounds for divorce. And we laugh, but we have something called irreconcilable differences. 
for us within the church that have been reconciled to the Lord, that have been given the ministry of reconciliation, may it never be found that we would ever concur with the idea that there is something that is irreconcilable when we know that Christ has defeated sin and death and the tomb is empty. He could divorce her if she had a pug nose. The condition of her eyes was particularly important. If she had eyes too high or too low, if she were uh, cross-eyed, had no eyelashes, had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes, I don't know what that even means, or eyes big as a calf, or small like a goose, any of these justify divorce. It's all in there. The man could divorce his wife if her nose were too big or too little, her ears too little, little or too floppy, I don't know. Marrying dogs, I don't know what we're doing. If she had an overbite or an underbite, missing teeth, a poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, so no outies, only innies, <laughs> bony ankles or knees, swollen feet. If she were bow legged, suffered from swelling of the big toe, little toe, little toe wouldn't be granted. If her heel had protrusions, Corns, I don't know. If the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, it's there. Or if she were ambidextrous. The husband had the right to divorce his wife if she broke the law of Moses or if she transgressed Jewish custom by going outdoors with her hair unbound, spun cloth in the street, or spoke to any man other than her husband. She would also be divorced if she cursed her husband's parents or yelled at her husband so loud that her voice could be heard outside the house. A man could divorce his wife if she had a bad reputation, if she burned his supper, or if he simply found someone that he thought was prettier. You see how frivolous it had become. Ultimately, you could grant a certificate of divorce for any reason that you found fitting. And if we approach this text or marriage in general, primarily looking for the exit door, what constitutes exit? Where's the parachute? Where's the exit door? Uh, What are the outs? If we come searching from the outset what grounds constitutes the disillusion of our marriage, then we are approaching the text from the wrong direction and with the wrong motivation. And the first thing that I think we must wrap our heads around is motivation. What is our, what is our motivation? What is our motivation as we come to this text? What is our motivation as we come to marriage? What is our motivation that we come to Scripture in general? And there are three principles that must always be present with our motivation as we approach a text. That we're not looking for proof texts to try to make the word fit our feelings. That we want to make it about ourselves to illustrate How many times have you sat through a message where somebody has talked about how you're David and the stones of our faith are going to slay the giants and we make this picture of David about us as if we are the center of the story? Listen, Jesus is David. Jesus is the one who slays our giants, not us. We rest in them. We're the cowardly Israelites on the line of the battlefield that didn't want to step into battle. We're the ones cowering, waiting for a champion, waiting for a savior to step foot upon the battlefield, and that was Jesus. Scripture is all about Jesus. It's about God. It is theological in nature, not anthropological. When we read this primarily as an anthropological uh, revelation, and it's all about man, then we fail to understand that, no, 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 this is all about God's revealing of himself to us, and man's response to that. First, we must approach this text and every text with the understanding that it is for his glory, that it is for his glory and his glory alone, that everything within his word, everything it is that we are to apply to our lives, everything it is that we are to do in the name of God Almighty is for his glory. It's not for our salvation. It's not for our glory. It is for his glory. Secondly, we approach this text and we approach every text of Scripture to honor God. We understand it is for his glory, and we want to honor God. As 
created beings underneath the sovereign hand of our creator, everything it is that scripture is calling us to do and calling us to be is to honor God. It is to please God and not to please man. Will radically transform how you read scripture when you understand, first and foremost, it is uh, for his glory, it is to honor God, and secondly, it is to herald the gospel. It is to herald the gospel. As we read scripture, we should always read in light of how do we take this message to other individuals to proclaim the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we approach a text about marriage and we approach a text that speaks on divorce and and remarriage, then we must understand it must be for his glory. It must be to honor God and it must be to herald the gospel in every way that we approach it. So secondly, when we understand the motivation that needs to be present, then we can address this topic of marriage. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus wants to do. They, they come to him, and uh, he's talking about what is being discussed within the life of Judaism, and he starts to address uh, uh, the, the, the issue of, of divorce. And he, he says in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, that is a, a, a provision. Divorce is permissible according to God's word, for two instances, but not commanded. Even if those two things are present, sexual immorality, unfaithfulness against the spouse, or if an unbeliever walks away, as we read in 1 Corinthians, as an unbeliever walks away from the marriage covenant, God's word says, let them go. Those are the two grounds that are permissible for divorce, and remarriage. However, it's not commanded. Some of you have gone through the pain and the tragedy of sexual immorality and unfaithfulness in your marriage. Some of you have had somebody that doesn't know Jesus walk away from you. And God's word says, listen, because of the hardness of men's hearts, I have granted these two instances, but I am not commanding that, nor is it my desire, because that was not how it was meant to be in the first. In fact, in Matthew 19, 3 through 9, we see that Jesus is confronted and tried to be trapped. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, do you uh, adhere to the the rabbinic school of Shammai, or do you uh, adhere to the rabbinic school of Hillel? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? You see, Jesus says, I I, I don't want to address the issue of divorce. Let's talk about marriage because the greatest uh, 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 way to combat divorce is to make sure we have a good understanding of what marriage absolutely is to be in God's eyes. He goes on to say, so they are no longer uh, two flesh, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And that's their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, 1 through 4. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, at the beginning of creation, in the perfect world before sin entered into this world, there was no idea of divorce between one man and one woman entering into that covenant relationship of marriage. It wasn't the heart of God for us to look at what it is that we are looking at today. Because God's heart was chastity before marriage and fidelity after to one individual for life. When we look at marriage, we come across two truths. One, it's instituted by God. God created it. So here, Jesus says, I don't want to make this a message about divorce. Let's make this a message about marriage. Have you not heard that in the beginning, uh, a man would leave his his mother and his father and be joined to one wife, uh, and that was to be forever because the two were becoming one flesh? This was instituted by God. Genesis 2.24 shows us that. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and that shall become one flesh. Local, state, national government is not the definer of marriage. The Supreme Court of the United States or something to uh, its equal in other countries is not the definer of marriage. Cultural and popular opinion are not the definers of marriage. God and God alone is the definer of marriage because he is the creator of marriage. And it's important in his heart. Before the church was ever instituted, marriage was given by God to man to be the core institution in which life and society was built around. Why do you think the enemy tried so hard to destroy marriages? tried so hard to destroy families because it truly is the foundational institution that God has given society for us to live our lives within, to proclaim the gospel, and to show the goodness of God at work in the lives of individuals, but also in the lives collectively of those that have chosen to come together in the union of marriage and the reproduction of children as a result. Secondly, it's the illustration of Christ in the church. So it's instituted by God, so we have no right to define it or to to determine it to be anything other than what God has said it to be. He is the creator of it. Therefore, he is the one that gives to define it. And secondly, it is an illustration of Christ in the church. For us that live on this side of the cross, we must understand that it is an illustration of, of Christ and his love for the church, that we are the bride. That's what Ephesians 5 was uh, speaking to, the mystery uh, that we find in relation to the fact that Christ, through the reconciliation of each individual that have placed their faith and trust in his redeeming atoning work on the cross have now been reconciled back into a relationship. A covenant has been established, and that covenant is forever. We, we don't believe uh, that the Bible teaches that you can lose your salvation. That once you enter into the covenant relationship uh, with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, he, is, he is with you and he is for you and he will never leave you nor will he forsake you. Now, there is something that is always at the outset of every discussion I have with individuals that come to me and want me to uh, officiate their, their wedding. In the very first meeting, before we start talking about finances, before we start talking about communication, before we start talking about sex, before we start talking about any of the various things that will go on in the life of a marriage, how many children individuals want, whatever the case may be, the very first thing that I want to know from each individual sitting across from me is I want to know their testimony. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? Tell me about your spiritual condition. Tell me about when you came to faith in Jesus. Because if one of them has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus, it is my personal opinion and it is my stance that I take upon God's word that I cannot stand before God in good conscience to say that these two are going to enter into a covenant relationship that mysteriously proclaims the gospel of Christ and the church if one of them doesn't even believe that Jesus died for their sins or that they need to repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus. One of the worst things we can do is to step into a covenant relationship with somebody that is not in the covenant relationship with Jesus of the new covenant. And we must take this serious. I think about Solomon. The man was had the greatest wisdom and the greatest riches, ended up, I think, with 500 wives, like 700 concubines. That don't show great wisdom to me. I, I, listen, I mess up with just one all the time. That brother stayed in the doghouse. 500? He made somebody mad at some point. Just think about the towel folding. He folded it one way. She likes it that way. She likes it a different way. Dishwashing loading. How many people came behind each other unloading and reloading the dishwasher? Dishes never got done. They just had to get new dishes all the time. I know it. 
Solomon, in 2 Chronicles 8, 11, Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel, for the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Now, he knows something inherently that there is a separation that exists with God and his people and those that reject God to the point that he said, I can't even bring her into the temple. I can't even bring her into the area where the ark has been because that is holy. And he's not acknowledging that she is not holy in the sight of God Almighty because she rejects God as the one true and living God to the point that he says, listen, I have a life over here and I have a life over here. And he understood inherently the separation between the holy and the unholy, the godly and the ungodly godly. And for us, we need to understand you can't enter into a covenant relationship that says we are going to build our lives upon the foundation of Christ. If one in that marriage relationship rejects Christ as the foundation of all of mankind, you can't do it. You're setting yourself up for extreme heartache and failure. And that's not to mean that that individual might not come to the Lord. And if you are in that condition right now where you are married to a non-believer, God's word says you must remain in that marriage. As much as it depends upon you, you live at peace and you remain in that marriage because it may be through your following after Christ that they see the beauty of the gospel message of Christ and his bride, the church, and that they, through the work of the Holy Spirit and your testimony and your faithfulness and your obedience, come to faith in Christ. But from the outset, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15 speaks to this reality of do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So again, marriage is an illustration of Christ and his bride, the church. There ought to be two distinct kinds of marriage. There ought to be a Christian marriage. There's a worldly marriage. And the world ought to be able to tell the difference of which one we're living in. Our marriage should proclaim the gospel. And far too often marriages in the church look no different than marriages outside. For those that have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that have been entrusted with God's word, and our marriages should look different because it is a proclamation of the gospel to a lost and a dying world. But what does that look like? What, what does that look like for us? As Jesus wants to steer the conversation away from divorce, you're looking for an exit door. Let's, let's talk about what is the good soil in which would produce a good and a godly and a healthy marriage. Let's talk about that. What are the, the marks of a good and a healthy marriage? What are those marks that we are to look at? Well, first... We need to make sure that we understand that, that God is kept foundationally. God is kept foundation. He has to be the foundation of our marriages. God is kept at the, the foundation. The foundation can't, can't be love. You've been married more than two years. You know sometimes you, you wake up and it, it's... Oh, she's so just going to not put the toothpaste cap back on? She's just going to have all the toothpaste just chilling, hardening on the top of the rim. She's just going to gnaw on the toothbrush. I can't brush my teeth with my, I have a certain way I brush my teeth. And for the longest time, we used to get in arguments over the toothpaste. Because my wife is a, she's a, I don't know what you call it, she's a, and just a, a large amount of toothpaste comes and congregates upon the top. And she doesn't do a queen, uh, clean sweep. I mean, you got to sweep the leg, Johnny. You got you to gotta, you gotta sweep it. You get it all off the top. And she leaves residue. Well, it hardens. And so when I go to use it, it has to try to free itself <laughs> out from 
the prison of hardened toothpaste that has it wrapped up in bondage and sin. <laughs> and you get little chunks of glass hardened toothpaste and your gums. Dennis think you have gingivitis. You don't. You just have hardened glass toothpaste, a part of what? And so we used to argue because I would tell her, like, why? 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 And she would get mad at me, like, why does, it, why does it matter? It's just toothpaste. It's, like, it's not even that, that big of a deal. Like, just clean it off and, and, and then go. And we would get in arguments because there was a time I thought she was literally, like, doing it to aggravate me. But that's just her. That's her quirk, right? That, that, that's, that, that's her deal. Uh, if she got the microphone, uh, I probably won't say this in second service. If she had the microphone... <laughs> She'd tell you all about mine and the things that I do that drive her absolutely crazy. You know what the answer was? Two separate tubes of toothpaste. It wasn't that big of a deal. She got her tube of toothpaste, and she can do it wrong the rest of her life, and I'll do it God's way over on my seat. So love can't be the foundation because there are times where your spouse is like nails against a chalkboard. And we can look pious in here and say, that ain't true. And, and, but God knows. God knows those things that sometimes irritate us. The foundation is God. The foundation is Christ that we build our marriage upon. It must be God. It has to be God. It has to be his word. It has to be the covenant that we establish with the other individual that our yes is yes and our no is no and that we take a look at ourselves and we deal with the plank that is in our eye before we deal with the speck of hardened toothpaste in theirs. God is the foundation. Secondly, a mark of a godly and healthy marriage is that grace is shown freely. That we don't withhold grace. They don't have to earn grace from us. If you do this and this, then I'll extend forgiveness. We don't put parameters around. God doesn't put parameters around us for his grace. It is solely faith in our, our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That grace is shown freely. That we're the first ones to run to the cross. We're the first ones to extend forgiveness. The healthy marriage is individuals learning more and more to extend grace quicker and quicker and freelier and freelier, if that's a word. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you all also must forgive. That grace is shown freely. That when our, our spouse wounds us, we, we extend grace freely to them. 2 Peter 3.18 says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is something that we have to grow in. This isn't something that we just become experts in. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So we must keep God foundationally, we must show grace freely, and we must have our garden kept faithfully. Because weeds are going to grow up. If we don't tend to our marriage, we're going to have all kinds of weeds start to grow up within the life of our marriage. And the things that we don't address, the grace that we don't show freely, the things that we hold on to, the things that we bottle up, the things that we start to hold against our spouse and we don't, we don't deal with, those weeds start to overgrow to the point that, man, it becomes twice as hard, ten times as hard, sometimes a hundred times as hard to get it back in shape of having a healthy, fruitful, producing marriage. We must cultivate the interests and aspirations of the other, not engaging in a battle of egos for supremacy. And oftentimes that's what is uh, the, the biggest weeds that we find within marriage is that we have our own personal egos and the other person becomes an opponent as, a, as opposed to the other member of the one flesh that has been established by God. And now we're in a competition and to where there's a winner and loser in arguments. Listen, there, there's no, in marriage, there's no winners or losers. Listen, you're a team together. If one wins and you think the other one loses, you both lost. 
It's not a competition, but how often in marriage do we fall into the keeping score method of marriage? Well, today, I mean, I really, um, I'm at 3,000 today. She's about 1,000. I'm, I'm, I'm doing more. And though, therefore, I'm owed more. The problem is we keep score wrong because you always give yourself more points than the other person. For you, I took out the trash today. That's at least 600. That's at least 600 points. I took it all the way down to the curb. She folded the laundry and washed the dishes. Yeah, that's pretty good. I'd give her about 150. We keep score totally different. We always give ourselves a higher score than our spouse. And when we keep score, then we start to say, well, they need to do this and this so that they can even the score. But the problem is we never truly evaluate the situation properly. And God says, listen, within the confines of marriage, it's not about keeping score. You're one flesh. In the covenant relationship of Christ and his bride, the church, he's not keeping score. He's not saying, oh, you want my love? Then you better do this, this, and this. It is an overflow of the fact that we have already received his love, that we cherish being able to serve him in that capacity. And husbands, oftentimes, we love Ephesians 5 where it says submit. And I've talked about this on on several different occasions that oftentimes we read that and we're like, "Well, well, yeah, you better submit. It's what the good book says. Submit. And there's this this idea of uh, this this oversight and this despot. And we look at God's word and says, now now you better get to it. It's what it says. Well, did you read on? Because you're supposed to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church so that he could present her spotless and unblemished. His caring and his concern wasn't for himself. It was for her. He literally laid down his life for his bride, the church. Now, when we understand what Christ has done for us, serving him becomes a joy. Submitting to him becomes a joy. And men, if, if we want an Ephesian, I mean, if we want a Proverbs 31 woman, we better be an Ephesians 5 man. We better lay everything down for our, our goal ought to be the washing of her, the building up of her, the cherishing of her. I've never had anybody sit across from me talking about a marital dispute saying, he just loves me too much. He just serves me too much. He won't stop washing the dishes after I cook. Can't get him to stop. He never leaves dirty towels on the, on the bathroom floor for me to pick up and put in the hamper two feet away. Never does it. I can't stand him. Never have I had anybody sit across from me and say that. But I've had plenty of people sit across and say, he doesn't think of me, he doesn't cherish me, he doesn't do anything for me. It's all about what I'm doing for him. Or vice versa. Our garden must be kept faithfully. Psalm 128, verses 1 through 3 says this. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. And there's work that has to be done to cultivate an atmosphere in which the the grounds of each of the hearts of our family members are, are, are good soil that produces fruit. We also need to make sure that gratitude is spoke fluently. That gratitude is spoke fluently. I had to repent the other day to my wife. And I had to repent to the Lord and I had to repent to my wife because I'd fallen into this, 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 this kind of trap of pointing out all the things that she wasn't doing right instead of celebrating the things that she was. And I remember... Uh, coming home one day and, and just kind of uh, 
pointing out some, some, some of her, her, her flaws, not looking at the log that was in my own eye. And I, I just see the defeat because oftentimes we say those same things to ourselves, don't we? And we want to do things in a certain way, and, and we can't live up to our own expectations, and so it absolutely crushes us when the person we love the most sets those expectations and shows us that we're not living up to them. And most of the time, they're unrealistic expectations that we wouldn't even put on ourselves, but yet we, we put them on our wives or we put them on our husband. And I saw how crushed she was, and it broke me. I had to repent to her. I had to repent to, to God Almighty because there are so many things that need to be celebrated within our spouse. And oftentimes we fall into this trap of pointing out with the, the voice of the enemy all the things that they're failing to do instead of celebrating the things that they are doing. And God forgive us for that. That gratitude should be spoke fluently. We should be fluent in gratitude. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. I see what it is that you do. You're a fantastic mother. You're a fantastic wife. Thank you for making dinner for us. I know you've had a hard day. I know you've had a lot going on, but yet you still made dinner for us, and you still helped get the children ready for bed, even though you are absolutely exhausted, instead of pointing out all of the flaws. We speak fluently with gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage our spouse. Build up our spouse. Jesus says, I don't want to necessarily talk about divorce, although it has been permitted by God in two instances. What I want to talk about is marriage. How do we prevent divorce from the first place? Now, ultimately, and lastly, I want to conclude with this, the Messiah. Because wherever you are in marriage, wherever you are, whether you've been divorced and haven't remarried, or you've been divorced and you've remarried, there are fresh starts and new beginnings at the foot of the cross. And what the Jews of that day were waiting for was a Messiah to come and to restore things into this political nation. Jesus is saying, you have this expectation that is faulty. Now let me tell you the truth. And he's trying to show them of who the Messiah truly is, who he truly is, who the Christ truly is, what he truly came to do and to be. And where they had a misconception of the Messiah, Jesus comes as the Messiah to reveal. So Jesus reveals, the Messiah reveals. So we understand God through the revelation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for he is the Word made flesh. He reveals. And when we come to texts like this, we can't look at it and say, okay, it makes me a little uncomfortable, or I really see it this way, or I want it to be this way, and so I don't want to address this text or what Jesus is saying. We can't come to that because Jesus is the revealer. He says, no, 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 this is the truth. You must build your life based upon this reality and this reality alone. And for us, we need to understand that that is how we build our lives as well. Let us not be like the Pharisees who say, yeah, I don't, I don't really like that. You don't live up to the expectation that I want, so I'm going to reconfigure you to be something other than who you truly are so that I can now, having created God in my image, instead of understand I'm created in his image, live my life in accordance with my desires and my ideas as opposed to surrendering myself completely to live according to his. Secondly, the Messiah redeems. So wherever you are, wherever you are in your marriage, if divorce is a part of your story, if divorce and remarriage is a part of your story, know that Jesus redeems. He is the redeemer. He didn't come just to set up some kind of political, societal system. He came to redeem that which is broken, that which has been stolen by the enemy, that which is in darkness, that which is in sin, that which is in bondage, that which is in death. He has come to bring it into his light. He's come to redeem it and to bring it out of that darkness, to bring it out of death and to make life and 
and newness out of that situation. So wherever you are, the answer is Jesus. If you're in a marriage that seems like it is dissolving, if you're in a marriage that seems like it is growing and is better than you've ever been uh, experienced before, if you are currently going through a divorce, if you are divorced, if you're divorced or and have become remarried, then understand that Christ is the Redeemer and he redeems all individuals who come to him in faith and he works as through new creations in Christ to work in and through the proclamation of the gospel of these individuals that he redeems. And thirdly, the Messiah restores. That he restores the years that the locusts have eaten. That he restores. Your marriage seems like it's hanging on by a thread. Jesus can restore it. You've gone through the, the, the heart-breaking reality of divorce. Christ can restore it. You find yourself remarried and, and walking through the, the, the trials of a blended family that come along with that or just navigating that past divorce and this new marriage you find. Listen, Christ restores. Christ restores. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, again, is not heaping things upon us like the Pharisees who say, here are things to weigh you down. And no, he looks at us and he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd, that they've been burdened, that they've been wearied. And he says, I've come to, to reveal God and his love, ultimately through my sacrifice on the cross, to redeem you to myself, to redeem you to God, and to restore all that which the enemy has stolen from you, to restore that brokenness that is in your heart, to restore that, that pain, and to make beauty out of ashes to truly work in and through your life to where the God of all comfort comes in and heals those wounds that this broken world has given us so that we as restored new believers in Christ Jesus can proclaim the goodness to those that are still stuck in darkness that are still stuck in the brokenness of being restored back in a reconciled relationship with Christ and so if you sit in here today regardless of where you're at know that Jesus calls out to you, come, come, bring your marriage, good, bad, indifferent, wherever you are, bring your marriage to the foot of the cross. Your heartache and pain of walking through a divorce, whether uh, it, was, it was you uh, that was the guilty party or, or another, come, bring that to the foot of the cross. Maybe you just come today and say, I'm weary and heavy burdened by my sin. And like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, I'm looking for somewhere to unload my burden. Come to Christ. He is the only one who can free you of your sin and make you a new creation in him. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me?